Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Uh, this passage is beyond me or any man really to preach. The truths therein are beyond human understanding it in full. And yet you've given it to us to cause us to wonder and to rejoice and to instruct us in the way. So be our teacher this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we come to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse... Five and we come really to one of the towering Christological passages in all of the scriptures. And we could spend weeks, months even expounding these texts. This really is a springboard into the deepest parts of the ocean of scripture. It is a vault in which many of the richest treasures of theology can be found. It is a passage that deals with the nature and the essence of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who is fully God and fully man. It deals with the incarnation of Christ. It deals with the humiliation of Christ. It deals with the exaltation of Christ. It deals with the coronation of Christ. It would be very easy, really, to preach any number of sermons fixed on the theology that is found in these passages and completely miss Paul's point. We certainly will address the theology of this passage, but it's important to remember that what the apostle says here about the Lord Jesus Christ is intended as an illustration to the point he's actually trying to make. One commentator writes this, quote, Paul has leveraged Christiology in the service of ecclesiology. What does he mean? He's taken Christ as an example to teach us about life in the church. There are many things in this passage about Christ that are taught that you and I will never be and could never be. But the fundamental point that Paul is making, we must be. And we're to imitate Christ in that way. And so we need to be careful for losing the forest for the trees this passage wasn't really written as a defense for the divinity of Christ. It, it wasn't given to us to untangle the hypostatic union or to debate the kenosis. All of those things are clearly taught here, but they're not the point of the passage. This passage is about humility. It's about humility in the service, ultimately, in a broader context, of unity. That's the focal point. That's what's under the microscope. And Jesus is being upheld as the supreme example of a humble mindset, of a humble attitude. Humility is perhaps the most exalted virtue there is in the eyes of God. You might be tempted to argue that it's love, and I wouldn't argue with you. But you would be hard-pressed to find genuine Christ-like love without genuine Christ-like humility. Humility is the fuel for love. If love is active sacrifice for the good of another, humility is the attitude that underlies that sacrifice. It is the lifeblood of the believer. It is our go-to virtue. It is the daily driver of virtues. It is the soil in which all true godliness grows. Humility, if you will, is like salt. It seasons and makes everything better. 
Humility is the answer to all of life's relational challenges. Do you want to be a good father? Then put on humility. Do you want to be a faithful wife? Then put on humility. Do you want to be a good friend? Do you want to be a good churchman? Do you want to be a good employee? Do you want to be a good boss? Well, it all begins right here with an attitude of humility. We are commanded in Scripture to clothe ourselves with humility. Colossians 3.2. A worthy life, says Paul in Ephesians 4.2, is characterized by all humility. All humility, not some. All humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love. We're warned by Paul in Galatians 6, 3, that if anyone thinks they're something when they're nothing, he deceives himself. God is opposed to the proud, says Peter, but gives grace to the humble. And brother, sister, the last thing you need is God as your opponent. You need God on your side. You need the grace of God. And the grace of God comes to those who are humble. And so this morning, the Lord will call us through the pen of the Apostle Paul to a certain attitude, one that is a characteristic of Christ. He's drenched in it. And that is the attitude of humility. Let's read together from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and up through verse 8. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with Humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We'll divide this passage this morning under two simple heads, the first being an exhortation to humility and the second being the example of humility. Paul begins by giving us a commandment. He exhorts us to humility. And the Bible repeatedly and consistently points to the Lord Jesus Christ as our example for the whole of the Christian life. We are to imitate Christ in everything. When it comes to living righteously, we're taught in 1 John 2.6, we ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. When it comes to serving others, Jesus said, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. When it comes to forgiveness, we're taught to bear one another's burdens. We're taught to forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so must you do also. 
Jesus put it out there in about the most concise form when he turned to Peter and he said, you follow me. So it's no surprise then when Paul calls each of us to an attitude of humility that he would point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the epitome, the preeminent example of humility. If you want to see humility distilled in a Christian life, if you want to see humility in its purest form, look to Jesus. There are other biblical examples, of course, but there are not better examples than Jesus Christ. And Paul begins in verse 5 saying, have this attitude in yourselves. This is a commandment. And it's in a verb tense that says it is to be characteristic of every one of Christ's children that we are to be characterized by this constant pursuit of this attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Now this passage is so familiar it will be a temptation to you to, to zone out and not think through it with me carefully, but I want to ask this question because it's an obvious point and it's something that Paul definitely wants us to contemplate. Then the question is this, what is an attitude? An attitude is a settled way of thinking. It is a mindset. It is a perspective. It is a a mental approach to the events of your life. It is an inner disposition. It is not, first and foremost, doing anything. Humble people are not characterized, first and foremost, by what they do, but by what motivates them to do what they do. This is a perspective that colors everything. It even affects the way you feel about things. And really it is a way of thinking about yourself. It is a heart posture. And what Paul is addressing in this text is something that is deeper than mere actions. He's talking about the way that we think about ourselves, particularly in relationship to one another. And that particularly in relationship to our siblings in Christ, given the context of Philippians. Actions can be false, can't they? You can put on the dog. You can can put on an act. You can hypocritically put on a mask, and you can carry yourself in a certain way so that people think a certain way about you. That is not what this is calling us to. This is calling us to be true through and through, from the inside out, that we would be humble people who then act in humble ways toward one another. It is possible to do the right thing with a rotten attitude. And we need to change from the inside out, which is why only Christians are commanded to do this. It's the only way that you can, in fact, do this because you're so attached to yourself as a non-believer, you can't even see it. You can't even conceive of a world where you're not first. But for the Christian, it's different. And he is calling us and has been calling us, Paul has, individually and collectively to cultivate a certain mindset in our midst. And you can think about yourself since you're part of the in our midst part. How is your mindset? How is your attitude? Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. You remember he's calling them to reflect back on 
Christ and all that they received in Christ, all the encouragement that was there and the, the consolation of God's love and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the affection and the compassion, all of these things. He's saying, remember back, think about these things. And then in verse 2, he mentions having the same mind. That was that word phreneo. It's a, it's a mindset. It's a way of thinking. That word intent in one purpose, that also is that, that Greek word phreneo. It comes up three times in this brief passage. Have the same mind. Have the same intent. Be intent on one purpose. And what is that, that purpose? Well, he tells us in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But have humility of mind. We're to regard one another as more important than ourselves. And then in verse 5, he uses phreneo again when he says, have this attitude in yourselves. So understand where Paul is starting and what he's calling us to. All of this is designed to challenge really what's going on inside of you. Don't catalog a, a number of things that you've done Look in the mirror and consider internally what's going on inside of you and how you perceive yourself in relation to others in this congregation. Paul's after a frame of mind. Now, you'll remember the Philippians had this problem. There there was so much right about this church, but the one thing they definitely had wrong, and you can find this, in this book in various places, it sort of bubbles to the top, is that they were having relational difficulties, that that spirit-wrought unity that God had established in them was being threatened. And there was disunity and there was dissension and there were there was internal division in their midst. You'll remember in chapter two and verse 14, he tells them, stop complaining. Why would he tell them that? Except that they were grumbling and complaining. And, and then he, he comes and he, he, he confronts, you remember those two women in chapter 4, Yodia and Syntyche, because there was a very public spat going on between the two of these ladies, and it needed to cease. And all of this was undermining the church. And we noted that, that Paul doesn't just say to them, hey, get with the program, fix it, quit fighting. But instead, in a positive way, he says, consider, think, have an attitude, and that will right the wrongs. That'll fix the mess. I was told once that if your trailer, it's summer months here, I know some of you are going to be driving around. If your trailer begins to sway behind, what's intuitive is to hit the brake. And I, I heard, I hope I'm right because I'm making it public, but, but I heard from, I won't name him, he said, no, what you want to do in that moment is accelerate and draw the trailer in behind you. If you, if you want to fix the relational ills of your life, if you want to be as far as it is possible, as much as it depends on you, at peace with all men, then it begins here. You need to hit the accelerator on humility in your life. The Philippians were grumbling and they were complaining, they were fighting. And so Paul has begun to address this really from the get-go in the letter, but he really begins to tighten the noose in verse 
27 of chapter 1 when he commands them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And one of the points that we made in weeks past is that when you hear that idea of conducting yourself worthy worthily of the gospel, it's not a matter of you individually simply thinking, well, am I having my quiet time? Am I reading my Bible? Am I praying? Am I obeying? Am I, am I, am I, am I? No. How are we? A worthy walk is a walk that considers the corporate dimension of the church. It is to live in peace and to live in unity with your brother and sister in Christ. It is to stand firm together, as Paul says, and to strive together for the sake of the gospel and to suffer together for the gospel. And we do all of that with a mutual commitment to an attitude of lowliness. Not self-exaltation. Which is the way you came out of the womb. Look over at James chapter 4 just momentarily. Paul, uh, James writes this, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Why do you fight? Why are you guys at each other's throats? And he answers his question, is it not the source of your pleasures, your pleasures, the source, your pleasures, that wage war in your members? You want to know why you're so agitated and angsty inside? Well, it, it starts here. I want something and I'm not getting it. I want my way and I'm not getting it. He says, you lust and you do not have. And so you commit murder. And whether that was real sort of life and death murder or whether that was just hatred from the heart, which is the equivalent morally, he says, you want things so badly that you're willing to despise your brother in light of those things. You're envious, he says. You look at the things that others have and you don't have them and you can't obtain them. And so the end result is you're a pugilist, you're a fighter. You go after one another. He says when it comes to your prayers, you know what, you don't get what you ask for because you ask with wrong motives. You wanna spend it on your pleasures. You just pray for yourself. You see, these are people who are utterly consumed with self and James is confronting it so consumed with self, so distant from the way they ought to be, so far from what God calls us to be as his children, he says to him in verse four, these people, you adulteresses, you are faithless. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? That's the real problem. These people love the world. They love the things in the world. All that lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, all your possessions and passions and positions, they wanted it. They couldn't get it. And so they were, they were constantly agitated. And he says that kind of life is hostility toward God. If you want to make yourself a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Skip down to verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
you cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You want to live for God and you want to live for the things of this world? He says, wash your hands. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Get serious. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. You see, the cure for that selfish, independent, contentious spirit in us and in our churches and in our families is, is the, the cure is simply this, that we grow in humility. This is the attitude that we're being called to have here, where God is first, others are second, and we come in a distant third. In fact, there isn't much a thought for us. Because we've been set free from that enslavement. Go back to Philippians and look at the first part of verse 8. He says, being found in appearance as a man, note these three words, underline, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Sometimes we look at humility and we, we tend to think, well, you either are or you aren't. No, you have something to do with this, just as Jesus did. And it had to be this way, brothers and sisters. You, you think about it. When we think of the word humiliation, we tend to think of being embarrassed by someone or some set of circumstances. We've been humiliated, right? And most of us, in fact, the world, you could say, lives their lives to avoid being humiliated. We, we don't want that at all. You might ask this question, how could a sovereign God be humbled? You see how the word is used differently? God cannot be humbled, can he? There is nothing, he does everything right, he's perfect, he's all powerful, he knows all things, he is impeccable, you cannot accuse him of any sin or any fault, he is he is Teflon in the truest sense of the word. There is nothing that sticks to God. He cannot be humbled, but he humbled himself. Don't miss that. Jesus was not forced into anything. Jesus was not manipulated into anything. Jesus chose to humble himself for you. He chose of his own volition to step down the steep stairway from the very heights of heaven to the very depths of earth. Christ says this is exactly what he did when he humbled himself. This is the greatest demonstration of willing humiliation that one can even begin to conceive, and I say begin because you cannot conceive, nor can I, of the depths of this humiliation. It will be clearer to us when we breathe the rarefied air of, hair, of, uh, of heaven, right? We, we, we will know then, unlike we know now, but even now it's enough to break us and to humble us and to soften us. Frankly, it's enough to change us if we're willing to contemplate it.
Do you want to be Christ-like? It begins right here. It begins with a humble frame of mind, a willingness to humble yourself before God and man. This is the exhortation. We are to have this attitude in ourselves. Let's look now at the example of our Lord. Here's the example of humility. This is our our second heading, the example of humility. Verse 5 asks us, the question, what is humility? Well, it's a way of thinking. It's an attitude. Verses 6 to 8 lead us to consider how this attitude then manifests itself. What does humility look like? What does humility do? These verses, if you were to read probably in your study notes or if you were to read any commentaries on this passage, you would learn that this was purportedly an early uh, hymn in, in the infant church and that Paul is employing it here for his purposes, which is an interesting potential, but it's not really vital to our understanding. Again, let's stay fixed on what Paul is trying to accomplish. The emphasis of this section, we're just going to look at in three ways how this humble mindset is expressed, and it's it's expressed in Christ's incarnation, in his condescension and his death on the cross or his crucifixion. Again, that's the the incarnation, Christ's condescension and Christ's crucifixion. If you want to understand this attitude of humility and what humility does, think with me, Paul says, about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ that God becomes man. Look at verse 6. He says who, and he's referring there to Christ Jesus. He says who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Look down at verse 8, or the end of verse 7. says he was made in the likeness of men. In verse 8, he was found in appearance as a man. Steve Lawson said, no one ever started so high and no one ever descended so low as the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like Paul here in describing what happened with Jesus is is starting on the very top floor of the Sears building in Chicago and he just begins to descend the flights of stairs all the way down to the basement garage. Sometimes I refer to this passage as the limbo bar of humility. Paul keeps saying, how low can Christ go? He calls the Philippians to turn from their self-centeredness, to turn from their bickering and their complaining, to get their eyes off the horizontal and to look up to Christ and to see him descending from the heights of heaven to the very cross at Calvary. What a savior. Think of it, says Paul. Think of Christ's status in glory. He existed in the form of God. And he will die for the creature's sin on a Roman gibbet.
When Paul writes that Christ existed in the form of God, he's not talking about some kind of external appearance, as though Jesus somehow looked like God, or he was in the shape of God, or in the likeness of God. He's speaking really about the very nature of God. Your nature is what makes you, you. What makes God, God, was possessed from all eternity by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is by nature God. He is not like God, he is God. He shares the essential nature of God himself. What is said about God can be said about Jesus. And all that God is, Jesus was and Jesus is and Jesus will forever be. Christ possesses all the attributes of deity in their fullness. Everything, everything that God is entitled to, Jesus is entitled to. Paul says that Christ is equal with God and that he existed. That's a present participle. Literally in the Greek it would read this way, who in the form of God existing. You see, it it erases this concept of time. Christ is outside of time because God is outside of time. He has always been, and I know, you, you don't even know what to do with something like that. I don't either. Wonder and worship, that's what you do with stuff like that. Christ, there never was a time when he was not. He did not begin to be in the form of God at some point. He has always been. In beginning was the word, that's a reference to Christ, John 1.1, and the word was with God and the word was God. Imagine it, before Genesis 1.1 was ever penned. There is the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, outside the bonds of time, co-equal, co-eternal, majestic in glory and honor. And there is Christ, the Son, enjoying the glories of heaven, relishing that face-to-face fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit in splendor and in majesty, Christ Christ worshipped by angels, everyone acknowledging that he is who he is. He is God. He is worthy. He alone is worthy of worship. All the joy and the pleasantries and the ease of heaven. Beloved, even the lofty heights of heaven are beyond our wildest imagination. We have never known, again, where the heights from which Christ started. I can't even reach up there. So lofty, so exalted, so glorious. And this is the point. Brothers and sisters, it was from there. It was from that exalted place. It was from that place of ease and wonder and glory and peace and joy. It was from that exalted position, that preeminent status, that privileged position that Christ held and rightfully held 
That was his realm. It was his realm. And he surrendered all of that to take on human nature and to become a real man, a genuine man. The text tells us that he was made in the likeness of men, not not created. That's not what it's saying. The, the word means to become. The idea is he Jesus became what he was not. When Jesus came from the heights of heaven, eternal God of eternal God, when he came from the heights of heaven, he took to his divinity, his divine nature, he took to himself something that he was not previously. He added to himself a human nature. The infinite God took on finite humanity. And he, he was not, and again, we need to remind ourselves of this because we slip into it. He wasn't playing a part. This was no act. Jesus was not in costume. He was so much a man, in fact, so obviously a man, that when people looked at him, that's what most of them saw, simply that. That's why in verse 8, it says, being found in appearance as a man. No one ever looked at Jesus in the flesh and said, Whoa, that's God. And those who did eventually realize that, what did Jesus say to Peter when Peter declared rightly who Jesus was as the Son of God? Blessed are you, Peter. Why? Because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven has opened your eyes to the reality of who I am, but most men missed it altogether. Jesus was just another face in the crowd. In fact, Isaiah said of him that he had no stately form or majesty that we should look on him. He was nothing to look at. Jesus wasn't a model. He was no celebrity with with high cheekbones and perfect teeth. He took all the limitations of flesh and blood. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He had to learn stuff. He experienced weariness. He knew what it was to lose friends in death. He knew the assault of temptation in this world, and yet without sin. And if we think about it for a moment, it leads us to just, with our minds boggled, to raise that question, who does this? Who takes lofty status Who takes, if they have wealth beyond your imagination, who would expect Mark Zuckerberg to live in Watts? Who would expect Elon Musk to live next to me? You know what I mean? Nobody does this except Jesus who is humble through and through. He voluntarily lived below his station and below his means. He came to live among his creatures. 
Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. You see, this was the cost of redeeming us. He had to be made like us so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, so that he might make propitiation for our sins. And so he came and he took on human flesh, and he was every bit as human as you or I, and yet he remained, what? Fully God. Jesus claimed to be God while he was on earth. That's why the Jews sought to stone him for blasphemy. They understood it perfectly. It was by his signs and miracles that he proved he was God. He said, even if you do not believe in me, just look at the signs. They'll tell you. He, he was worshipped as God while he was on earth, both by men and by angels. And he never told people, hey, don't do that. Jesus Christ is the perfect God-man, two natures in one person, one divine, one human. There is no intermingling, but there he is fully God and he is fully man. And it is just unimaginable, isn't it, that the infinite creator of all things entered into this messy world born of a virgin, saddled with the limitations of humanity, and he suffered, and he bled, and he died, and all of that for us, and all of that motivated by an attitude of humility. Listen, the Bible warns, the Bible warns us about taking these things lightly. One of the prayers I've had all week for myself is, Lord, let me know this with weight like it ought to be. This ought to impress me. This ought to impress you. This ought to crush you, frankly. It ought to leave you low. It ought to leave you serious. Because life is serious. It's about Life and death, it's about heaven and hell. Life is not a joke. Otherwise, God would never have sent his son to undertake this on our behalf. My friend, listen, with a heart that truly is for you, I would plead with you if you have never come to Christ. Do you see what this humble servant, Savior, did for sinners? The book of Hebrews warns those who would, it uses this language, who would trample underfoot. The blood of the covenant. Who would insult the spirit of grace. Do you see that to turn your back on this and to, to simply blow it off as though, yeah, a nice guy did a nice thing. He was a good teacher. You're falling so far short of really understanding what happened. May the Lord open your eyes to who Christ is and all that he, he went as he took the sins of men upon himself, died in the place of all who would hope in him. I beg you on behalf of Christ, hope in Christ. Come to Christ. You cannot strut to Jesus. You must come humble as he is humble. And you must come broken about your sin, you must come acknowledging your need for a righteousness that you cannot supply for yourself, 
But Jesus, who is altogether righteous, there is no darkness in him, will give you his righteousness if you'll put your faith in him and turn in repentance to him. Beloved, we should never tire, never tire about thinking of Christ's humility in the incarnation. It gives us the right posture and and perspective for our own lives. Well, we've only started down the flights of stairs. We have looked at the incarnation, how the infinite God took on humanity. Secondly, we want to see the the condescension of Christ. That means to go low. How is it that the king of glory becomes the slave of men? Verse 6. Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, note this, taking on the form of a bondservant. This word grasp means to cling or to grasp, to seize. And what Paul is saying is, look, Jesus did not have a a white-knuckle grip on all that was his as God. All the privileges that were his, all the honor that was his. He who deserved to be served did not cling to that right, and it is a right that Christ would be served. He didn't cling to it, but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. Jesus did not assert his prerogatives as God. He did not exploit his position. He didn't take advantage of his rights, and they were his rights. We've come, haven't we, to expect people who are in positions of authority and power and prestige and privilege to leverage all of that for their own advancement, for their own benefit. Think with me. That is not what Christ did with all of his glory, all of his power and his majesty and his authority, all the things that were rightfully within his grasp as God, he did not white-knuckle that. He didn't grip it and squeeze it to his chest. No. What did Christ do with all that glory and power and majesty and authority? He didn't clutch it. He didn't look out, verse 3, for his own interests. But he looked out for our interests. Jesus did not hang on to all that was good for him in heaven. Instead, he emptied himself, verse 7, for all that would be good for us on earth. As we come to this phrase, emptied himself, this is one of these words in this passage that has caused such debate over the years, and it's very easy to get on the wrong track here. So if you're tending to doze, slap yourself and pay attention for a moment, okay? Look, if, if Christ emptied himself, well, what does that mean? Did, did he, you'll hear this a lot of times, he, he poured himself out. He, he, he was a vessel who was God, but he dumped all of that God out on the table so that he might be filled with whatever is human. That is not what this is teaching. It is not teaching that Jesus divested himself of his divinity to become a man or that he somehow stopped being God so that he could make room for for humanity in his nature. No, this word is a word that's used in the New Testament metaphorically, and it, it means this. You should write it in the margin, to make void or to nullify. It is to make oneself 
of no account, of no effect, to consider self of no effect. King James Version gets it right. He made himself of no reputation. The NIV here too. He made himself nothing. You get what's being said there. This word looks back to the time in the past when the son made a decisive resolution. Independent of any influence on him, he made this freely of himself. He is not a begrudging savior. No, he, he made out of humility a resolute decision to surrender his rightful prerogatives of God and to step out of glory in order to benefit us. In other words, it teaches that Jesus willingly chose to leave those rights and privileges he enjoyed in heaven so that he might serve us in obedience to the Father. And all of this, of course, is temporary. It was a temporary surrender of status and honor and privilege that he enjoyed in heaven. It it is, if you will, a self-limiting act of humility. He willfully uh, chose not to fully express his deity and all of his attributes and all of his privileges while he was on earth. Instead, the text says that he emptied himself and became obedient as a slave. In your Bible, it might read this way. He took the form of a bondservant. A bondservant is too nice a word for this word. This word is just the common word for slave. That is a better translation. Jesus did not come the first time in glory and power. No, this text says he came as a slave. The king of glory took up the status and the servitude and the shame of dwelling as a slave. A slave in Roman society was the absolute dregs. It was the lowest rung in society. In fact, they didn't even have a rung for slaves. They were nothing. They were property. They owned nothing. They were free to do nothing. They were, they were utterly under the control of someone else who literally could take their life if they felt like it for any reason at all. You want to talk about prince to pauper. This is not a rags to riches story. This is a riches to rags. He made himself, what? Poor, that we might be made rich. He gave up the glories of heaven that we might gain the glories of heaven. This is the kind of thing, brothers and sisters, that is absolutely mocked in the world, but it is precious to us, is it not? It is precious to us. And Paul thinks about what's going on in the Philippian church, and he says, you know what, this is the kind of thing that warring factions need. This is just the kind of thing that warring factions need. This is, if churches live like this, there would be fewer church splits. If churches, there'd be none. If churches lived like this, there, there wouldn't be people bouncing from church to church to try and avoid the people who were in the previous church. If marriages were lived out like this, if spouses viewed one another from this lowly vantage point, dissension would utterly dissipate. 
You see, you look at the humble attitude and example of Christ and you absolutely cannot remain indifferent. If you've gained any insight at all, you cannot stay hard toward other people. You cannot act in an unforgiving manner towards people. You can't relish and stir and bask in your bitterness. When you understand the way that Jesus has loved you, he gave all of that up. And he suffered as a slave to serve his father and to serve us. What is humility like? Well, look at the incarnation. God became a man. You can look at the condescension of Christ. The king became a slave. And finally, Paul says, look at the crucifixion of Christ. The sinless son died. It was prophesied, wasn't it, from the third chapter of Genesis And it was planned from eternity past even before that. And it was foreshadowed in the sacrificial system and graphically depicted by Isaiah. And John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is no mystery, it was no mystery to Christ that he was in fact going to have to suffer these very things on our behalf. And brothers and sisters, here's the thing. Here's what humility does. He said, I see the cost, I'll pay it. I see the cost, I'll incur it. I'm willing to be made of no effect and no account, though I am the king of kings. I will do this for my people because I am a good shepherd. And the good shepherd doesn't flee. The good shepherd, in humble boldness, incurs whatever the cost, whatever the threat, I'll do it. He knew it, and he did it anyway. And so the verse says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have come, have we not, to the basement. We are at the lowest of the low. The Christ of heaven hangs upon a Roman cross a death which is by everyone's account, whether biblical or historical or secular, it doesn't matter. It was a death so demeaning and so degrading and so loathsome that it was kept for the absolute worst of people. So bad was crucifixion that by Roman law, no Roman citizen could ever be punished in this fashion. And the whole point of it was not just the physical pain, but it was all about the beating and the mockery. It was all about the spit in the face. It was all about the scorn and the derision. It was all about stripping you bare to nothing. To be gawked at by the world. We could speak about the physical torments of the cross, and we have. And we could consider the agony of the Father pouring his wrath out upon the Son. And we could try to conceive of the spiritual anguish of Jesus and all that he experienced in those dark hours as the sin bearer for us. But again, Paul's point in context really isn't about the agony of suffering for sin, though that's certainly included. His point here is he says, gaze 
at the humility of Christ, a humility that was so great that he was willing as God to descend from the, the glories and the utmost pinnacles of heaven all the way down to the absolute lowest of the low, to the lowest place on earth, being crucified on a cross suffering the utmost degradation and the utmost shame. Beloved, the point is the distance traveled. (laughs) And it's the attitude of humility that enables one to travel that distance. Jesus had long distance humility. It wasn't a flash in the pan experience. This was a, a perspective that was deeply rooted and perfectly rooted within him that enabled him to go on and on and on with endurance in humility. It was about the cost incurred. It was about the depths to which the king and the Lord would go to serve his father and to save his people. In fact, you could think of it this way. It was a no limits humility. No limits. You ever find that word, really? Which is a word that comes out of a proud disposition that says, I deserve to be treated better than this. How could you even think to say something like that about me? When you find that word in your heart, my friends, know that pride is poking its head up and you have a game of whack-a-mole going, you need to take it and cut that thing down at its roots. You need to chop it down and to humble yourself. Use every opportunity that God gives you in this life to humble yourself, to go low, to grow in this lowliest of virtues. Jesus went all the way, even to death, on a cross. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I'll take that curse. Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be the the righteousness of God in him. Over and over again in that good shepherd reference that I made earlier in John 10 in verse 11, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18, he says it, I lay my life down. Nobody takes it from me. Don't look at the Romans, don't look at the Jews, don't look at, don't look at the crowd around Jesus taunting and shouting at him. You look at Jesus on the cross and you say, his humility put him there. And his love put him there. He gives up his life. This supreme act of love flowing up and out of a supreme attitude of humility. That's how far, beloved, he went for our salvation. All of his own initiative. All of this for you. All of this for the good of his sheep. Behold your God. Behold Christ, the Lamb crucified, 
for the sin of the world. Mike Riccardi has written insightfully here, quote, lofty theology is meant to lift us to exalted doxology, which means praise. This glorious doctrine must bring us to our knees in worship. We need to marvel at the humility of the Lord Jesus even before he became a man. God the Son contemplated all the riches of his pre-incarnate glory and nevertheless submissively chose to take on human nature and weakness of human flesh and to live and to die as a slave of all. There could be no better passage to lead us this morning to the Lord's table, to take communion, to reflect on him. And I would encourage you to, to do just that, to contemplate Christ, to remember Christ as the elements are being passed, to contemplate the heights from which he came and the depths to which he descended. And as you do that, brothers and sisters, rejoice with gratitude for our great God. Rejoice in him. Lord Jesus, you are exalted in all things. Very God of very God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one to whom all glory and honor is due, the one to whom are all things. And Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the time this morning to contemplate again in this passage the fact that you are exalted in humility. Lord, we fall so far short. There's still so much of us in us. But it is not that way with you. And we love you for it. We're grateful. Lord, we're grateful beyond words for your condescension, for your incarnation. Lord, for your crucifixion, for your willingness to bear our sins on the tree and to forgive us for our pride and our self-seeking, our arrogance, our selfishness. And Lord, we long to be like you. We long to have these things stripped from us. We long to be humble people who live our lives in imitation of your example that we might glorify you in all things. And we continue to pray, Lord, for your body here at this church that, Lord, whatever sparks, whatever dissension, whatever relational breaches and breaks there are, Lord, we ask that you would deliver the day by enabling us by your spirit to walk in love and to bear out that attitude of humility and lowliness that you have shown us. Thank you for coming from the heights of heaven to the depths of earth for the good of your people. Thank you again for this table and the invitation that we have by your grace and for the fact that we can come again to enjoy you and to enjoy all that you've done. Lord, to marvel on you, we give you praise. Help us to sing now with a full heart, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.